So this is the Interledger community call. It happens every two weeks. Uh, it's the 15th of April, if you're listening to a recording. Um, thanks for joining. We have a pretty full agenda. Uh, the agenda is um, tracked on the Interledger forum, forum.interledger.org. Um, if you ever want to contribute anything to the agenda, please do post it in there. Um, I can see uh, four topics. Uh, so I posted one about an update on sort of relations between SPSP, web monetization, open payments. We've been bouncing a bunch of ideas around um, on ways to simplify open payments a little bit, um, less indirection, uh, backwards compatibility with SPSP, and so on. So I want to throw those out there and see what folks uh, think of them, and then. We'll put them into something more formal. Uh, Neil's got um, a demo, uh, which would be great to watch. Uh, David wanted to chat a bit about payment point of spec, where, we, where we're going to track that normatively. Uh, and then IPinky7. I don't know if you're on the call, um, but uh, we can try and address your question uh, at the end as well around um, whether, you know, what Neil's um, demonstrating has to do with atomic swaps and settlements or um, maybe a, a quick update for anyone who's been tracking the project for a while on exactly how ILP4 works and how it differs from some of the very early ideas around Interledger, if I'm understanding that question correctly. Um, I don't know if we want to jumble the uh, order around a little bit because I suspect the open payments discussion could go on as long as the time allows. Um, so maybe give Neil and David a chance and we can, I'm happy to push my topic to the end. Uh, Neil, are you able to do your demo straight away? Is Neil on the call? Yes, he is. Oh yeah, sorry, he's muted. Uh, yeah, I can do it right cool. now. Yeah, okay. let me... Um, let me see if you can share your screen, I think you should be able to. Um, yeah, where is that? Share. Okay, you should see my slide deck. Is that correct? I can see it. Yep. We see it in, okay, cool. uh, in the slide view, not in uh, There we go. Perfect. Yeah, switch it. Okay. Yeah, so I just wanted to go over something that we, we worked on recently in the Java connector. Um, thought it might be useful to get some feedback as far as, you know, we think it's a good idea. I'm not sure what other connectors are doing, if they're doing something similar or contemplating it. But the, the problem is um, durable stream payments. Um, I'm going to talk only on the receiving side because we haven't actually worked on the sending side yet. But kind of the problem is, you know, with stream payments as a, as a receiver, um, you know, stream payments can be split across multiple ILP packets. The packets can be fulfilled in parallel. So the sender can, can send the packets in parallel, which means the receiver may receive, you know, packets from multiple senders um, and multiple packets from each sender in parallel. And the receiver wants to fulfill those packets quickly. Um, some nice to haves would be, you know, right now, or before we did this, the problem was that we didn't really have a nice way to show people their their payments. You know, on the on the sending side, I'm sending 100 XRP. Um, on the receiving side, I might receive 100 XRP split into like 
100 packets. And we were just showing them a raw balance. We weren't showing them, you got a payment for 100 XRP. Um, the other nice thing that we are thinking about with, or I was thinking about with open payments is, it may be nice that as you're, as a receiver, as you're fulfilling payments, if the sender told you ahead of time, I'm gonna send you 100 XRP. And if for some reason the receiver received more than 100 XRP, like a bunch of packets are coming in, at some point, if more packets have been received, you know, the amount's been fulfilled, um, you know, the receiver could, could at that point start rejecting the packets and saying like, hey, you know, you've, you've already paid. Um, so kind of go over like some challenges and, and ways to get around that. So challenges are, you know, we've got all these packets coming in. Uh, how do we aggregate them into something meaningful? Um, how do we ensure that the packets, the aggregation is resilient, meaning that if, um, if I fulfill a packet, I wanna make sure that I don't lose the fact that I fulfilled that packet, you know, that I fulfilled the packet for one XRP. I don't wanna fulfill that and then have the balance or the transactions and not reflect that. Um, same thing, if I'm um, doing this, I want it to be performant, like I don't want my packet aggregation to slow down my receiver. Otherwise I may start timing out or, you know, like payments may start um, backing up and um, dropping off. So as far as, you know, aggregation key, um, I think most implementations of stream receivers generate a unique destination address. So you could just aggregate by that, um, or the, although it can be very long, so you could just hash that address. So as a packet comes in, I can see it's to this unique destination address. I can aggregate by that address or by some hash of that. Um, like another scenario would be that as when the receiver, or sorry, when the SPSB server um, gets a request to set up a, a simple payment. It could generate a payment ID, encrypt that, embed it in the destination address. And then the, when the receiver gets it, it could extract it from the destination address and aggregate by, by that ID. We, we're doing the first thing. We're just, at the moment, we're just aggregating by, the, by a hash of the destination address. But I could see for something like open payments where uh, you'd wanna have some sort of meaningful identifier sort of encoded or, or embedded in the destination. Um, so as far as resiliency, um, sort of the design we're going for is that on the receiver side as a packet comes in, um, during the fulfillment um, chain of events, we're gonna publish that packet that we're about to fulfill to some sort of um, data store, like a message queue, like RabbitMQ or Kafka, which is sort of a, you know, fire it off and then something else is gonna pick it up and, and work on it. Um, or possibly you could put it straight into a database. Uh, we're actually gonna demonstrate the, the latter. Um, so the, the first one would be the kind of the message queue where it's asynchronous, where the only thing that happens during fulfillment is I need, just need to put the, the message into a message queue and message queues are designed to be highly performant for that. And um, I can have as many subscribers or workers that are subscribing to those messages. So it, it's scalable because I can have, you know, as long as my message queue can, can receive messages, um, in the volume that I'm sending, I can scale out the subscribers and have, you know, 100 subscribers that are aggregating packets um, behind the scenes. The challenges being that, you know, it's more complicated having, you've got an extra set of like, you've got this queuing system, you've got this other uh, sort of aggregation system that's, that's separate. And it's eventually consistent so that during the fulfillment process, because it's asynchronous, I don't know I don't really know the status of like all these packets that are coming in. 
what's the real time status of like that payment. So if you look at this uh, in a diagram, you've got the sender sends a prepare packet, the receiver does all its you know validation and checking of the uh, packet, but as soon as it decides it's ready to fulfill it, it fires it off to a message queue, and then you've got that packet aggregator that's eventually put into something, probably a database. Um, the other option would be to aggregate it synchronously to the database, which means as part of that, the packet fulfillment, I'm gonna actually do like an insert or update into a database. And the advantage there is it's it's simpler because you probably already have a database hooked up to your app, to your, you know, we, in our case, we already had a database hooked up to our uh, receiver. Um, and because it's going to the database and the database is sort of like aggregating it in real time, um, I can have the database send back the, you know, the updated view of that payment. Um, challenge being that, you know, how do we keep this fast? Because uh, we're going to have tons of, you know, potentially tons of um, packets coming in trying to, to uh, insert or update the same database records. Um, and then this is just the, the same view where we've basically taken out the thing in the middle. Um, with the queue and just going straight to the database. Um, so we chose to do the database update and then uh, at least for this initial pass, just because we felt like for the volumes we're getting, we could we could make it performant enough to do a real-time database update. Some considerations are you wanna make sure that whatever you know key you're inserting on and updating on, there's an index for. You wanna minimize the round trips to the database so that what you don't wanna do is do like a Packet comes in, I do a select to look at the payment, see it's not there, see it is there, decide like I wanna update it, then go back, do another um, call to the database to do the update, which means I'd have to lock that row the entire time. So you'd have um, lots of row lock contention of like different, uh, if, if three packets come in for the same payment, each one would try to obtain the lock, hold on to it so that they could read and update the value. Better if you could do it in one operation so it all happens on the database. Um, Thinking ahead, we're not doing this, but you could, you know, if, if it turned out that you went down this path and you're like, my database isn't keeping up. Um, one nice thing is that you could shard the database horizontally. So you could have say three databases and um, all of your destination addresses or whatever your, your aggregation key is, uh, you, could, you could shard by that. Um, so that way, as your, as your volume grows, you just add another database and as long as your, um, it's easy to, to go from your um, packet to a shard key that tells you which database to go to, then it should be pretty scalable. So um, kind of a general view of like what our schema looks like. This is, this is simplified, um, but you know, you can imagine there's a table, there's, a, there's an ID, which is just a, a surrogate primary key for the database. Then there's the payment ID, which is the actual like natural key or business key. Um, in the case of like an open payment, that might be like the invoice ID, something like that. Uh, received amount would start at zero. If you were doing something where you knew ahead of time how much they were gonna send, you could insert like an expected amount. Um, and it might be nice to track how many packets were part of that payment. Um, so you can imagine, you know, you do an insert, you insert uh, your, your first payment, it, the received amount was zero, and let's say we expected it to be a thousand. Um, then as a, packet comes in for fulfillment. Um, what we're gonna do is to do this sort of select and update 
all-in-one thing. We're going to do the update. We're going to tell the database, I want you to increase the received amount on this, um, this payment by the amount that I'm telling you, uh, assuming that you're doing it one packet at a time, so we're just going to increase the packet count by one. Payment ID would be the thing we derived from the destination address. Um, and we could, we could also put a, uh, let's make sure that if the received amount is, uh, we only want to do this if the received amount is less than the expected amount, meaning if we've already exceeded how much we expected to receive, we don't want to do the update. Um, and then in order to see the updated view of what happened, you, the returning star at the end basically returns the entire row that was updated. Um, so in the case of like we do an update where it was zero and it went to say 10, when the record gets returned, it would show 10 as the amount. If it turned out that we'd already exceeded the payment, the returning would return nothing because the where clause would have said, I, I can't find anything to update. And so you could infer then, uh, ah, we must have already exceeded the, the, the expected amount. Therefore, I could reject this packet and possibly signal you know, why it was rejected. Um, so I'll do a quick demo of all this. I kind of blew through this quickly because I don't want to take too long. Were there any questions before I move on? Take that as a no. Okay. Um, so in, in my demo here, I've got, um, this is our like sandbox uh, play uh, wallet account that we've been using for our connector. Let me make sure I'm logged in. All right, so I've got 826 XRP in my account. I'm going to take my payment pointer here. I'm gonna go into Rafiki Money and I'm gonna send a payment to that address. And let's say now Rafiki Money is in uh, US dollars, but my, uh, my account here is an XRP. So there's gonna be some conversion. So let's say I send a hundred dollars. I think the, the current exchange rate is about 20 cents for an XRP. So should expect to receive roughly 500 um, XRP since I'm sending $100. Uh, so we'll send it there. Look over here and it was 826 before. So yeah, it's about a little under 500. Um, so now if I go into my database, we don't have the front end yet showing the transactions. So I'm just gonna show you in the database what uh, it looks like. All right, so this payment ID is just a hash of the destination address. Um, I can see that this was the amount, but it's in scale nine XRP. So, you know, if I took that amount and divide by scale nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, it's 498 XRP and a little bit uh, is what I got. Uh, I can see that Rafiki money doesn't, um, as part of the stream, doesn't send a source address. Like they don't send the connection new address frame. Uh, if they have, then I would, I would capture it here. Um, it's optional, so it's, it's null. Uh, we can see that this payment took, it was only two packets. Probably the first one was like a zero base packet for rate probing, and then the second one was the full amount. Um, and it took, uh, between the first and second packet, there was, you know, just a fraction of a second. Um, so more interesting one would be, I'm gonna do a payment where I'll have it take longer where there's lots of packets. So I'm gonna send a payment, it's 100 XRP. I have it set so that it's gonna break it up into like the max um, packet amount is, 
I forget, something like 100,000 um, drops. Um, so if I run this, I'm going to see it's starting to send packets. At the moment, it's sending um, 12 packets just per, or 55 packets per second. Um, let's see, this is a different. So what I can see here is as I refresh, I can see the packets going up. I can see the amount going up. Eventually it should uh, reach the end. Um, now in our case, um, I set the source address. So it got captured in one of the packets. I think it's like in the pre-flight packets we send. Um, so this should have succeeded. Now I can see it was it was finished and it was closed. Like the stream sent the uh, close uh, frame. So I assume that, that payment is closed. And we can see that this can be scaled up where, you know, if I send 100 payments and maybe I'll do like 10 in parallel and 200 packets in parallel. Then when I run this, um, we can see that I can push through quite a few packets per second. So as it ramps up, um, you know, I'm up to 1200 packets per second that I'm pushing out. And if I see what's happening over here, I should see a lot of payments happening in parallel and getting aggregated. And that is basically the demo. Any questions? Any questions? How much underlying resources are you using to get um, how much, so how much like utilization is happening? I mean, yeah, like, my... um, what are the size of the instances and how many, um, like un actual instances are you running to get 1200? Um, yeah, so I'm running, let's look at this. So on my database, um, so this is running in GCP. I'm running a database with, uh, where is it? Four CPUs, 12 gigs of memory. You can see, like, I don't think this utilization is updating in real time. I ran the same test earlier and you can see under the same load, it was about 15% utilization. So kind of tells me the database is in the bottleneck. Um, the thing where we're actually running our receiver is probably under heavier load and it's running more. So it's uh, this guy here. Uh, so if we look at some of the, the graphs here, you can see, you know, when I was running my test earlier, I was, I don't think that's right. That seems overstated. It says I was doing 2,700 requests per second. Um, but this, this is using, uh, we've got four instances and they're each using two CPUs. So this is, um, this is running on Kubernetes. So it's using Cloud Run, which uses Kubernetes under the cover. There's four pods. Each pod has two um, virtual CPUs allocated to it and two gigs of RAM. And then utilization wise, it looks like CPU, I don't know, it's hard to read these because it's hard to tell like what 100% utilization is. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, so, so just, just to mention, um, so we, we're currently investigating, um, you know, what would be the best way to 
um, updated balance, um, you know, atomically. Um, and uh -huh. it comes, and it actually came from because we were doing some work for the Module Loop um, organization, and they were running into performance issues with um, they with with their stack, and um, you know, and it just like it just spurred the question on like what would be the the, the best way to atomically update a balance um, that would provide the best balance between you know the un like how much underlying um, CPU usage do you need. Um, data resiliency and message durability and things like that. So it's like really interesting to see like the way that you guys have um, approached it and the, like to like just um, start a conversation, um, maybe just to learn a few things from you guys. And um, if, if you know, if we come across anything that we would love to obviously uh, push that forward. Yeah, for sure. Matt, you also had a question, I think. Yeah, Neil, thanks for this presentation. It's something that uh, we've been dealing with a little bit on our side. So I think it's timely and uh, you, you seem to have hit quite a lot of the, the issues and thought patterns around there on the head. Um, the first thing I'm just going to mention quickly when I saw your database, just be careful with, um, with cloud offerings. IOPS is generally the thing that's going to bound you the most first. And IOPS and GCP is scaled by um, the, the size of the data. Um, of the underlying data store you chose and also to make sure to use SSDs. So you'll see uh, like if you're going to, if you reprovision your database, I'd really recommend pushing up the, um, pushing up the, the, the size. Even if you, even if you're not going to use like two, 300 gigs, it, it, it just makes sure that you're not going to be IOP bound, which is generally what you'll hit first um, when you're using a cloud database, if when you're using low, low amounts. So you're talking about you need to up the storage or you need to up the CPU? Like which, which one do they bound? No, 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 the storage. Storage? storage. So, okay. So, so, so the, way, the way a lot of these um, cloud um, offerings work is that the underlying hard drives aren't actually hard drives. They're like network drives. And the way they protect them is they basically work off IOPS, which is like the amount of like independent operations that you can do. So read or write operations on those underlying network drives. Um, those are usually bound by the size of the actual device you choose. So if you choose 10 gigs, you might only get 300 IOPS, but if you choose 300 gigs, you might get 3000. Um, so it's just something, it's just a quick gotcha that you must always just watch out uh, for with those, um, with those instances. Um, then secondly, the question I had with the um, fulfilling of the packets, are you fulfilling, are you fulfilling after doing an, an up, upsert into the database or are you fulfilling um, before? We're doing the upsert just before. So like the very last thing that happens in the, the chain of events is go do the upsert. As long as the upsert succeeds, then I'm going to return the fulfillment on the, cool. you know, we're, we're only doing um, ILP over HTTP. So we're going to, we're going to write out the fulfillment response just after the upsert succeeds. Perfect. So if your data store went down, you wouldn't fulfill packets and you we wouldn't, wouldn't fulfill packets. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the downside of like the database becomes a, you know, if database is down, we're down as far as packet fulfillment. But that's probably a good thing because then you've got no way to account for packets. If you were failing, like not doing that. Yeah. You don't uh, have this. Um, right. Yeah. So I, so I will give a shout out that Kincaid has released a new branch for stream server um, that actually adds the same type of functionality that, with a, a should fulfill callback when you instantiate the client or the server that allows you to put arbitrary code in there to do 
some work before you fulfill the packet. Um, so if you want to check that out, I'd recommend looking at that as well. Okay. But yeah, Neil, thanks for this. This is awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, I really yeah, enjoyed really this. Cool. Thanks. Um, so I had a comment on um, your aggregation. Um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned open payments. And I think that like aggregation has been one of the problems we've been trying to solve for a while in thinking about and talking with wallets about like how they handle this concept of streaming money and, and sort of relate it to what they have today in terms of tracking balances for their like users and so on. And, and, you know, there was one of the first things we had to solve in building Rafiki money, which is again, part of the motivation for actually doing it was figuring out what had it to be solved. So our thinking at the moment is we have this concept of an invoice, which is your sort of unit of aggregation. So if you have a bunch of streams um, or packets coming in, um, from one or multiple streams, but they all relate to an invoice, then that's how we aggregate them. Uh, and, uh, and, and as you correctly said in, in your slide, like we're using the invoice ID encoded in the um, address, and it could be that there's multiple addresses for the same invoice. So what's kind of interesting is your, like it could be that the fastest way to do this is something along the lines of what you're doing, but then do a second level of aggregation where you aggregate payments into an invoice. Um, the only disadvantage there is you're kind of, you're adding some complexity and you need to track all payments for a single invoice to understand if the invoice is paid or not and stuff like that. So it's, it's you don't then have a, you don't then have a kind of expected amount per payment. You have an expected amount for the invoice so you don't necessarily solve that problem anymore. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, I, I mean, that's something we, we, we should definitely chat about in the open payments side of like the, the design um, of open payments. Sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah. And no, I was just, I was going to say, I think you could do the same thing where you'd end up doing like two upserts in the same transaction or two updates in the same transaction. Like you'd update the, payments table and the invoice table. Um, it might be like at that point you're updating two rows in the same transaction. So there's going to be a little bit of a, a penalty hit, but not sure if that would be enough to disqualify it as an option. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, just to build on what Don said, like his plan at the moment, uh, he's working with a, a colleague um, is to, really take an abstract look at this stuff and say, you know, what are the different patterns? So like you've talked about two patterns here, um, maybe there's others. Um, and then, you know, kind of black box those and say, you know, under specific conditions, which ones actually perform best and then give some analysis on which, uh, you know, which are compromising on, let's say resilience in favor of speed, et cetera. Um, what are the compromises at least that you make to get different things? So, so I think it would be awesome if you guys um, are able available to do so um, to provide some feedback and input on that. Uh, I know maybe Don can, can say more specifically, but I think they're planning to at least spend the first while just gathering kind of uh, kind of a literature review, if you like, like gathering, ideas on what patterns to try and what has been tried before and so on and so forth. Cool. Any other questions for Neil?
Okay, cool. Thanks very much. This is this is awesome. Um, back to the agenda. We still got half an hour, and David Fueling, you wanted to chat about payment pointers. Uh, where do we normatively <laughs> where do we normatively store the payment pointer spec? Um, so some background on paymentpointers.org. I put that together probably a year ago or so because I felt a little bit like we were trying to build a sort of a user facing thing and a, an identifier that, um, you know, had a, it, it was a little bit dry and a bit difficult to understand like the real value proposition of payment pointers just from the technical specification. So paymentpointers.org uh, came out of that. Um, I don't have strong feelings about like where it should normatively be stored. I think, you know, we've sort of had a consensus that um, payment pointers uh, are going to be the, the kind of the discovery piece of open payments. If that's a agreed thing, then maybe the right thing to do is to have a, a normative description of payment pointers and how they work within the open payment spec. Um, that would probably be my proposal. Um, did you have any other thoughts on that specifically, David? Uh, no, I, I think that sounds fine. Also, I, I hadn't thought of the open payments work. Uh, so I was initially going to suggest that we just leave it in the RFCs in interledger so that the uh, paymentpointers.org website can be more um, explanatory, right? It can have a lot more color, whereas the spec could be thinner and just kind of have what, what's, what's only needed in the spec. Uh, but I, I don't have any objection if we want to move over to payment uh, or open payments for that. I, I do think. Yeah, I think, uh, but I think you make a good point there on the difference. Already. So, sorry, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, just that we, we have a spec process in Interledger and we don't really have that for like some of the other like, websites yet. Um, even open payments is still more of a website and less of like a spec document, although it's moving that way. Yeah, so totally. If we were to formalize open payments RFCs, then cool. Otherwise, I think we should leave it in interledger. Okay. I'm, I'm happy with that. Any other, anyone else got any thoughts on that? Where, where we keep a normative payment pointer spec? Uh, Adrian, it does bring up uh, in my mind where, like, how, how will open payments be spec'd? And maybe this is um, dovetails into So, so I think you, yeah, so I think you totally, uh, you're completely right, at least on open payments. I mean, it's an experiment at the moment. Um, it's, it, it's a work in progress. Like, we're, you know, we're building it, testing it, uh, putting it out there for people to comment on, you know, trying to, create interoperable implementations. And I think at that point, we're gonna say, okay, we need to be able to spec this so somebody um, who wants to build an implementation can do it without needing to have been part of the original project. That's, I guess, the, the goal. Uh, so for right now, open payments is more of an explanatory thing, I guess the same as paymentpointers.org. Um, and and it's you know getting us to a point where there's a common understanding about how it should work. Uh, yeah, I I think I agree. I think uh, it, once we 
confident that it's working the way we want it to, or we have consensus amongst the community, probably an RFC is the right direction. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Opposition, support? Strong support. I, I'd like having one repository of, of all the different specs and RFCs for, for that. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I guess one of the problems we have with the current RFCs repo is I don't think too many people know how to maintain it anymore because there was a move to a new kind of rendering system. Um, I wonder if we maybe need to separate the RFCs away from the website a bit and make it easier for kind of the dev community to maintain the RFCs and leave the website as more of a, um, you know, explanatory thing that's less formally maintained, like there's less formality around the editorial governance. I would place on that. I, I, I personally don't look at the website when I'm looking at RFCs. I usually go to GitHub. Ah, okay. <laughs> Same. Yeah, me too. Ah, thanks for all just like making all of my hard work redundant. Um, okay, that's, I think that's good feedback though. I think maybe we should look at something like DocuSaurus or a purpose-built system for maintaining the RFCs um, and let the website be a standalone artifact. Um, I'll, I'll look into that. I'm happy to take an action to look at that. I know I can chat with the, the Coil Cape Town team. We've experimented a bit with a few different things. Um, uh, I think we're... Currently using DocuSource 2, hey, Karen, for the open payment stuff. And that's been pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we, we can have a look at what it would take to, to use that. And I think the nice thing is that naturally uses Markdown as input. We wouldn't need our complex uh, sort of publishing um, scripts and so on to be able to render a nice uh, readable RCs site. So maybe maybe we could move that to be like a subdomain, rfcs.interledger.org, something that's standalone and doesn't have to try and keep uh, the same look and feel as the website. So Adrian, is the idea there that we would kind of do that same rendering that's on the website now, but just in a different website that we're angling? Uh, I guess my point is like, we don't need to try and make them the same. So there's a kind of a hacky interoperable in interaction there where the website is hosted in one repo and the RFCs are hosted in another. And previously the way it worked was the RFCs were a GitHub pages site and so is the website, but it was set up in such a way that slash RFCs in the website would stop rendering content from basically the RFCs repo but because they happen to both use the same template, it sort of looked like it was the same. Mm. And what I'm suggesting is we don't like, we don't try and do that. We just make the RFCs really dead simple. I mean, if people are reading them on GitHub mostly anyway, let's, yeah. let's not worry too much about the, you know, the styling and so on, just get them into a place that we can kind of point people at as a normative reference for them. Um, and make it easy to know which are deprecated, which are the latest versions, um, per permanent URLs for them, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too 
enthused with the idea of like adding a whole nother site. Like there's already like openpayments.dev, webmodernization.org, payment pointers has its own site, interledger.org. And I think there's like some fragmentation across all of our resources. Um, I also think like the website itself probably just like it, it's, it just needs to be totally redone content wise. Um, like even if you look at the homepage, it describes Interledger in a very ILPv1-esque way. I actually looked at the Wayback Machine and like it hasn't changed since 2015 <laughs> or 2016, something like that. Um, and I, I think it's lacking a lot of like kind of good explanations for um, or more accessible explanations for how um, the different protocols work and interact. Um, so one thing I started, um, this is right now, this is a private uh, repo in uh, the Interledger org um, is just a website refresh for interledger.org mainly focused just kind of on the content for now. Um, and this, this uses uh, ViewPress, uh, which is another uh, static site uh, generator, kind of like DocuSaurus. Mm -hmm. um, but I could imagine, like, cool. I, I think it, I, I looked at in, um, how it would pull the RFCs as markdown and then render those. And I, I think it, it'd be relatively uh, simple uh, to do that, which is, I guess, somewhat similar to what the current site does. But all I want is a publishing process for the RFCs that, the, that isn't as fragile so that we can basically have a process where, you know, we put up an RFC, um, it goes through the process that David painstakingly defined, people can put in pull requests, and if a pull request gets merged, like the latest version of the RFC is now available for people to see at some known URL, as well as a list of previous revisions that people can link to, and a permanent URL per revision. Like those were the requirements that we had. If we can do that, like the simpler, the better, in my opinion, whatever gets us that the simplest way possible. Agreed. But also, I, I think it's important to say not just the latest version, but also what the status of that RC is. Is this a technology that's kind of outdated, like um, HTTP, yeah. ILP, or is it a technology that is um, the current best practice? Yeah, so, so David, um, David had a stab at defining a slightly amended process to what we've got, which I thought was good. And Matt and I um, gave him quite a lot of feedback and others, I think, on that. Um, so maybe, maybe we need to take that, um, Kincaid, along with what you've been doing and see if we can, you know, jointly put a, a kind of a refresh of the whole site and RFCs. When, when I say I don't want, I'm, I want the RFCs on a different site, my point is more that I don't want the publishing process for the RFCs to somehow get overcomplicated by trying to apply templates and things that come from the website. Like that was, it wasn't really helping anybody. It just wasted a lot of time. Sure, I agree, I agree. Um, okay. Just, yeah. just to add Definitely. to that, I think Kate brought up a good point and it's something that like frustrates me about our websites is that we've got a very fragmented, fragmented website ecosystem. Um, like in my opinion, uh, everything should be under interledger.org. It's just easier to see. I mean, like 
open payments could then be under like openpayments.interledger.org or something if we really wanted it like that. But I think having like where that could have a dedicated site, but I think everything under Interledger and like the, the framing around that is quite important to understand that these technologies are bound to this, this uh, like I, the primary technology. I agree and disagree. Like I think there's projects, these are all projects and like they have some level of sort of, uh, the one, we, we need to balance some governance over Interledger. So, you know, I certainly don't want to be like a gatekeeper that anyone who wants to, you know, update something on their project that happens to be part of Interledger has to like get permission from other people. Um, so, so I think one of the ways to solve this is for the Interledger website to have a list of projects that are happening within the community and link to them. So I'm thinking of grant for the web, web monetization, open payments, um, you know, any others payment pointers, like all of these are, are sort of sub projects in the bigger interledger community. And I think it's fine for a project to have its own presence um, and its own governance and so on, as long as, you know, it's evolving. Like, otherwise we're just going to make it really difficult for people to be innovative and do new stuff. Um, as soon as that wants to like formally become a sort of a specked out part of the standards that we consider the interledger standards, you need to write an RFC and that's what sits within the interledger RFCs repo. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we can find a, a balance, but uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, let's just dump everything onto interledger.org uh, because then I think a lot of valuable stuff gets lost. I also think there's a lower hanging fruit in that I think the way that interledger.org currently explains ILP is not very aligned with, with how people are actually using it on the live network. And so I think that yeah. there's some room for improvement in terms of giving people a more realistic view of, of what's happening today versus um, what, what's sort of theoretically interesting. Yeah, totally. So, so I mean, we've got 15 minutes left. Um, I wanna give you a very quick update then. Uh, so this is non-agenda item. You know, I mentioned before on calls that on, on a previous call that you know, there's work happening to try and get the Interledger Foundation more operational. Um, that is ongoing, and these are the kinds of things that I'm hoping we will have like a permanent, you know, executive director of the foundation who cares about these sort of operational things like what's happening with the website and so on. And if you know there's not momentum within our community to do stuff about it, they take ownership of that and push it ahead. So. Um, at least for now, um, I'm happy to put an take an action here and um, at least start putting a plan together and, and sort of corralling people who can help. So Kincaid, thanks for already volunteering to redo the website. Um, that's awesome. Uh, I will uh, follow up with uh, folks via maybe the Slack after this and let's, yeah, let's see what we can do in terms of um, getting something closed out over the next few weeks in terms of website refresh, RFCs refresh, uh, and some full around consolidation of some of the other web properties. Any final thoughts on that, uh, or we can move on? Um, Adrian, do you have any thoughts on on kind of the maturity of open payments and like how close we are to a consensus view? And the reason I'm asking in this context is because I think one of the things that you would want to see on intelligent.org is sort of like how to make a, what people would recognizably call a payment um, versus other yeah. more complex things like web monetization. And so I, some of this refresh is almost, in my opinion, blocked on 
open payment or a similar standard that basically defines how to make more traditional types of payments. So you can demonstrate with that. So it works today. I mean, Matt and Karen, who have been working on it most recently, can, uh, at least in terms of Rafiki money, like the, the kind of our reference implementation, and David and Neil and co have, have got working, close to working implementations. We have some things we think we should change to simplify it. So Matt's got, you know, implementation experience now that he wants to bring to the fore. Um, I, I think we're, we're, it's mature enough that we could say, this is how we propose to do payments in these use cases for Interledger. Um, it's probably not mature enough that I'll be rushing to like existing big name wallets and saying, hey, please implement this. There's no risk that in six months time, we're gonna tell you to do it completely differently. And, and so, screw the small name wallets. <laughs> no, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean that from a, a, a killing our brand perspective, like we don't wanna to go to someone who has a huge user base get them to implement this thing and have lots of users who suddenly get a crappy experience. Like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean it that way. Uh, Matt, yeah, you, you, other than laughing at me, did you have something else you wanted to say? Yeah. yeah so, so, so I think we, we very close to having the tying up with SPSP and then what I would call discrete, sorry, peer to peer payments. And then, Sort of what you'd call invoice payments so you have like a traditional checkout flow the merchant presents you with an invoice and you pay it uh, out of band in your own way so the, the, those three places i think we're pretty close to having something that i think would be not that far from presentable the next one attacking is the the mandate so like the application to wallet level stuff that's a little bit more hairy and there's quite a few problems there that need to be solved which i think maybe we should bring up and discuss in the next uh, ilp call I, I agree. And, and I think um, some of the things that are blocking there are, you know, the typical sort of uh, identity things like, you know, if someone wants to create a mandate against your account, like who are they? How do they identify themselves? Um, so before you authorize someone to do stuff like that, um, you know, and, and that begs the question, like what framework, uh, under what framework are they identifying themselves? Are we relying on, you know, origin policy, like the web. So I'm trusting paypal.com or are we relying on, you know, some, some other framework where it's actually, it's the company PayPal and, and somehow they prove that that's who they are. So there's the sort of bigger esoteric questions there as well to answer. Um, um, before we run up, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Swan. I was just going to make a point. I, I don't know if I, I'm exactly hitting or answering your question or like hitting your point. But um, as a sort of general principle, um, I advocate for uh, solving technical problems, risk problems, and compliance problems separately from one another. Um, and so, for example, I think it's completely legitimate to make a spec which uh, gives tools for solving compliance problems, but doesn't directly address how to solve those problems, because oftentimes you need the context of an actual implementation, actual use case to to really come up with a solution for some of the compliance issues. And I think risk is similar, where like, depending on what my use case is, what type of user I'm thinking about, what type of amounts I'm thinking about, my risk checks might be totally different as well. And so I think it's totally legitimate for us to say, here's open payments and here's some extensibility for how people can address compliance and information exchange and things like that. Um, but the basic technical issues are, are, are addressed. 
in the spec. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I agree. I think that's a good that's a good framework to address the problem. And and I think Matt's correct in what he's saying in that we have the basic primitives here. We have invoices. We have mandates. We know how they interoperate. We know what they mean in terms of like the business rules of, of a wallet that would implement this stuff. What is left then for the industry or wallets or people to figure out is like, how do I decide things like the risk of authorizing a payment and so on? And so, yeah, I, I, we, we're not there yet. So I guess that does partly answer your original question of the maturity. Um, with, with, a few, with a few minutes left, I want to very briefly just give you uh, I guess a, a very quick summary of what we've been discussing today around SPSP and open payments. Um, I guess we'll have to just leave it with you guys to chew on. Uh, I've captured it in a Google doc. Uh, are people happy if I just share that Google doc with them or would it be better to put it in a gist and share that? Um, let me say it this way. Is anyone opposed to collaborating via Google doc? Why not put it on the forum? That's a good idea. I'll, I'll post it on the forum as a topic there. It's, it's pretty extensive, like it's, it's two or three pages, um, but I think I can do that. And, and what I'll do now very quickly is give you kind of the, the high level. Um, basically the constraints that we're working in is we have an existing ecosystem. We have a bunch of people out there who have been issued payment pointers by wallets. Um, those payment pointers behave in a specific way that's defined by the SPSP specification. Uh, we don't want to break any of that. So we want everyone who has a payment pointer today to be able to keep using it as they do. We want SPSP clients to still be able to query SPSP servers in the same way as they do today. But we want to expand the use case support. So we want to be able to support all of these new use cases that Open Payments uh, wants to support. So the way we're thinking about it is um, that what SPSP does today is what we would just call monetization as a use case within the set of use cases open payment supports. So open payment supports peer-to-peer -peer payments. It supports, uh, you know, e-commerce checkout. It's, it supports, you know, a variety of things that you can use cases you can put together by combining the concept of an invoice, a mandate, a, a payment stream. Um, monetization is just one of those. One of the nice things about how SPSP is defined is, is uh, one, it uses, a, it uses content negotiation. Uh, originally, this was intended as a versioning thing, and that's basically what we're going to use it for as well, except instead of going from a content type of application slash SPSP4, we're thinking of going to application slash monetization. Um, and, and that will become clearer as, as I go along. But what we want to do is take that media type concept and expand it to the other primitives that Open Payments uses. So we have the concept of a mandate, we have the concept of an invoice, and now we have the concept of what we're just calling a monetization resource. Uh, a monetization resource is what you get when you do a get request against uh, SPSP server today. So if you get um against the so you take a payment pointer it it resolves to a url you do an http get against that url today you what you get in return is what we call a monetization resource basically all that contains is an ilp address and a, a shared secret and that allows you to start streaming payments 
um, via monetization to the owner of that payment pointer. What we had previously thought of doing with open payments was once you have that URL, you go through a couple of sort of uh, levels of indirection to get to what we call server metadata. Um, and what that is, is, is a description of the wallet itself, the, the entity that's hosting the account uh, and tells you things like, where do I go to create invoices? Where do I go to create mandates? How do I do authorization, et cetera? We weren't happy with all of the indirection. Uh, we feel a little bit like, um, or at least my opinion was using well-known uh, addresses is like a cheat. It's basically like, I can't think of a good way to do this. So I'm just gonna come up with another well-known address and add it to the registry. Um, and so what we think is uh, a good way to do this is to treat the payment pointer URL. So the URL that you get from your payment pointer as like, that is the root of everything. That's the root of all interactions. So if I give somebody my payment pointer and they take the URL from that, all interactions start there. So if they do a get against that and they specify that they accept monetization as the media type, they'll get back a monetization resource and they can start streaming money. And that's, that's what we would like SPSP to evolve to. So it's a, it's a change of media type, but it can be backwards compatible because you can provide both media types in the request. However, the evolution of that is you can also do a post to that same URL and you can post either a mandate or an invoice. And when you do, you get back a 201 you know, created response as well as a location header that tells you the URL of the invoice or the mandate that you've created. And you can do a get against that to actually get things like the uh, payment credentials to pay the invoice or the um, address of the mandate to be able to issue a charge against the mandate, uh, et cetera. So that's the, like, the subtle change that we've made from how open payments is fixed today and how we're trying to tie it back to um, how SPSP works and, and really focus on this concept of payment pointers being kind of the, the, the URL that you get from the payment point of being kind of the root of the whole interaction. So I realize that doesn't leave a lot of time for questions, but let's try our best if anyone has any. Uh, that sounds good to me. Uh, this is Noah, by the way. Um, I'm just wondering like what stage Rafiki Money is in? Like, has that been implemented yet? Um, are you still using the well-known? No, that was designed this morning between ah, okay. myself <laughs> and so that we went around in a few circles on trying to figure out the right way to so it doesn't change a lot like you'll still have very much the the resource definitions and so on i think all stay the same the mm -hmm. only difference here is the discovery piece of going to the well-known to get the server metadata what would happen now is you just hit the payment point of url directly but instead of requesting monetization or spsp you request application JSON and you get back server metadata. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, just because I know we're we're working on an open payments implementation over on the Java side, um, so I just okay. want to keep cool. everything so, up to date yep. so that when we yeah, do yeah. decide to peer totally. with uh, and start doing open payments to Rafiki, that uh, we're speaking the same language. Perfect. Well, I'll I'll post this up on the forum now after the call, and awesome. we can you know, we can debate it there. And if people are happy with it, we'll update the site to reflect this. 
Um, and then I guess from our side, it'll be a case of updating Rafiki Money also to to work with us. Matt, did you want to have any make any comments on some of the thinking here? I know some of this came from your implementation experience. Um, yeah, so I'll just quickly leave with two high-level issues it solves. So the first one is the indirection basically required you to do manipulation of like URLs um, and then basically do a round trip to find the invoice or mandates endpoint and then actually go and hit it. So you basically ended up doing a bit of work before having to do that. And then you would still provide the subject, which would be the actual person who owns the payment pointer into that invoices URL when you were trying to create an invoice. And it just created a whole lot of indirection when the payment pointer already represents that person and having that singular place to just create it means you've got almost zero round trip. So if I wanted to go create an invoice there or create a mandate, basically I could get their payment pointer, do no round trip, post straight to there, and I could already have credentials and stuff to present to somebody or a URL to do auth against the mandate within like just the one, the one step. Um, and I think it become it, it makes it more semantically clear what the payment pointer is. It is, it, it's the representation of the, how I interact with this person or entity to perform payments on Interledger. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So, um, so we have run out of time. I apologize, um, but I think uh, a really great call. Uh, thanks again for the demo, um, and I'll post this up on the forum. Uh, we can pick up the discussion there, and uh, and then you know if necessary, further discussion at our next call. Next call, obviously, being on the 29th of April. So, thanks again, everyone, for dialing in and I will be in touch as well about uh, RFCs and, and website stuff. If anyone's interested in helping out on that, do let me know as well. Cool. Cheers, everyone.